0: Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. You're gonna be lichen this episode. Well, let me rephrase that. You're gonna like this episode about lichen. So what's a lichen? If you've hiked just about anywhere, you've probably seen one. They're colorful organisms that grow on rocks, tree branches, and even fence posts. And around where I live, I see lichens growing on people's roofs too. I call them organisms because they're complicated. Sometimes they're characterized as a symbiotic relationship between a fungi and an algae, but it's much more interesting than that. And there are few people better to help us learn about lichens and how to find them than Kerry Knudsen, a lichenologist from the University of Life Sciences in Prague. Kerry's personal story is equally fascinating as lichens themselves. Kerry got started in lichens later in life after a health condition derailed a long career in construction. And he's gone on to discover over 60 new lichen species that were previously undescribed, founded the Lichen Collection at the University of California, Riverside, and has 161 peer-reviewed publications on ResearchGate and more elsewhere. So get ready to learn about lichens, how they live, what they do, how they propagate, how wildfire impacts them, and much, much more. So as Allie Ward likes to say in her Entertaining-Ologies podcast, and despite my preparation and research, I had a lot of freedom to ask a smart person stupid questions. And I thank Kerry for his patience and detail and his answers. So, without further delay, Kerry Knudsen. Kerry, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to see you, Mike. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I am certainly a lichen novice. And where I live here in Northern California, there's a lot of lichen around. So, I've started paying more attention to what I see and learning a bit more. And, In fact, just bought a couple books, so I just can't be more excited to speak to you and learn even more. With that in mind, you have a very interesting background. If someone were to ask you what you do for a living, what would
1: you tell them? I'm a lichenologist. I'm a scientist, but I'm not an academic. So that's a big, important part of this in science. And I'm not an academic, though I do work at an academic institution, and they do like their name on the publications.
0: How did you get yourself into this position, working at an academic institution, without being an academic? Can you walk me through some of the steps that got you there?
1: Well, when I got involved in lichens, of course, I belonged to the California Lichen Society, and I joined that after two years of studying on my own. As I started studying lichens around my house, the first first acarospore I picked up, there was a problem with the naming. I looked up what was involved in it. And I wrote a note to, the, to uh, Arizona State University where they were doing a Sonoran lichen flora that came out in three volumes. I said, when somebody gets to this genus, this is a common species in Southern Californian soil crust, there's a nomenclatural problem, and you should check this out. I had been studying taxonomy to maybe go back to college. I sent that. They uh, contacted me and suggested, uh, we would like you to look at some stuff and and collaborate. And uh, you should get a university, you should go to a a herbarium somewhere and get on so you can get specimens sent to you. So I contacted two possible universities and uh, UCR was the closest to home. So I just originally just used to go in one day a week and uh, study specimens. After a doing a little bit of studying and corresponding with them, they invited me to join and collaborate on an acerospora treatment. That's what I did. UCR also asked me to start a lichen herbarium since I was already there, which I began. So a couple of questions. When you noticed this problem
0: with the nomenclature when you were studying the taxonomy... So you said that you wrote to Arizona State University about it. Did you have any credentials or publications at that point, or was that sort of your first? No, no, I hadn't had any publications yet. Sounds like you must have been very persuasive in that letter to get their attention like that. And actually, I know there's more to the story, and I think the questions steered us maybe a bit too far along. So how about we back up? Can you tell me how you got into lichens in the first place?
1: When I was forced into retirement, I became a Mr. Mom. I was disabled at 42 and was told that I might not live another more than eight or nine years. And, the, and my doctor convinced me to quit work and spend some time with my kids, he told me, before I die. <laughs> so so I, have, I have serious problems with my legs from blood clotting, a, a genetic disability. After about six or seven years, as the kids got older and uh, didn't want to really spend any time with me, more than they did when they were younger, which is normal, I decided I had to do something. I had an interest in botany back in the 70s, and I started studying plants again, got a microscope, and began working on plants. I was hoping that the state would back me up in my rehabilitation to go to UCR or one of the local colleges and get a degree in botany, I was already old enough that if I got the degree, by the time I went all the way through to getting a doctorate, I'd be retired anyway. And so I'd be in my 60s. I really wanted to do that. And the rehabilitation people said I was too old, too old to be sent back to college and to waste any kind of funding on that. And so I was pretty depressed. You know, I was studying plants. I was reading taxonomic things. I was visiting uh, gardens and going out into nature to to learn plants. And I didn't think much needed to be done in plants at that time. I was wrong, of course. but So I, I also had been reading some of the journals, and I saw a guy up north in the Bay Area did a an inventory of mosses in the Bay Area. I said, Jay, I could do that. So I thought, eh, mosses or lichens, I'll get into one of these. I actually decided that on one day... And and I found lichens, and I I began working on those. I didn't really understand where it would take me. As I got more serious about it, I got in touch with the California Lichen Society. I corresponded with a few peoples there. I began studying at home, and I maybe wrote I wrote one little article for them about lichen discoveries. I didn't really think it was going to go anywhere. I was just figured that there was three four hundred lichens in Southern California. I'd the ones in the hills around my house, publish a few inventories in small journals. That would be it, and I'd go on to study mosses or something else. As it turned out, just in the hills where I lived, there was a lot of lichens. And as I tried to identify them, I, was ha- I couldn't identify most of them, uh, not with the literature available at the time. It was while doing this that I, I got interested in this acrospora. And wrote them about it, because I just got their first flora, which was about macro lichens, which is great for where you live in in the San Francisco Bay Area. But there's just not many of them around my house in Southern California. And then I got interested in this one particular problem about an acerospora that grows on soil. And I worked on the nomenclature of it and sent them a letter for the next flora. I had no intention of working on the flora, but I sent them a letter explaining the problems, and they they were out of money for doing the acerospora treatment. And so they invited me to help a Spanish uh, lichenologist on the treatment. And so I went to Arizona, and having studied taxonomy, the person I was asked to work with I didn't think was too good. So anyway, I went to work on, started working on it right away. I had enough knowledge from studying books on taxonomy, what to do, and the lady that I was supposed to work with, she was really busy on grants in Spain, so I ended up doing it by myself. One of the things they asked me to do was to go to a herbarium and get a seat so I could borrow specimens and mail them, for instance, from Harvard and study them. That's just really how it started. I got it mixed up with UCR. They wanted a lichen herbarium. I got involved with doing that. Pretty soon, I got a few grants uh small one at first, and then one for $50,000. And with that, I really began building the herbarium. That's a really amazing story.
0: So UCR, that's UC Riverside, correct? Yes, yes. And so how do herbariums work? Is it sort of like a, sorry for the terrible analogy, but is it sort of like a library exchange where you have local specimen that you sort of trade or lend to Oh, other? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, for doing taxonomy work, you need... You can go out and collect stuff, but you also need to get like a, to establish names. You, for instance, have to borrow. Like I had, I needed specimens from Harvard to figure out several problems. Then, as we got going, we needed specimens from Sweden because most of the Acarospirids had been named by a Swedish taxonomist. So I had to see those. Yes, it works just like a library. So when I started the one at Riverside, I was impressed that a lichen collector named. Hassa had from uh, 1890 to 1916 collected in the Santa Monica mountains, and his specimens were at Harvard. And I thought, okay, this is the beginning of the 21st century. I'll make a collection of just Southern California material, and that'll be a record of what happened at the beginning of the 21st century. So luckily, I was on disability. I never got any money for doing this. And for 15 years, I built that herbarium. A herbarium does work like a library. You identify stuff, we database it, put labels on it. Luckily, I had, with the $50,000 grant for the Nature Conservancy, I was able to set up the herbarium to get started. And I worked on that for 15 years. I managed to bring in about two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 in grants. I'm not sure how much. And I would use that money to either pay for equipment, computers, microscopes, and used it also to collect in the field. So I built the herbarium, and because I was on disability, I didn't need to have a job. So it was
0: uh, really a passion project for you then. It turned into something that, that you thought was interesting near your house and evolved to this point.
1: Yeah, so- yeah, really, it did. Hey, I was, when in the very beginning, I was like one of these guys, I, had, I got my first dissecting microscope to study plants. That's all you need to study plants for most of the work. And so I was studying plants, but I was also picking up mushrooms, trying to find slime molds. And so, yeah, so it was a passion. Once I got involved in that, I, I began writing regularly and worked on the flora. The flora, the genus is so hard that when the flora came out, it automatically had the same effect as if I had done a doctorate in it in terms of recognition in the field. I'm curious too, so you you found this
0: path later in life. Oh, yes. And was this like a, a latent interest? Like when you were a kid, were you also interested in the natural world, or was this just like really a discovery? I
1: was interested in sex mostly as a, as a younger person. <laughs> and then uh, I was mostly interested in art, art, literature. I still maintain that interest now to this day. So nature as a child was not that important to me. As a young adult living in Chicago, and and I was about 19, I was living with a woman. Somehow we got a book identifying plants. We're in a city. We don't have cars. We were flat broke most of the time. But we'd go around and look at sunflowers, trees. It was kind of, I don't know, it was a cheesy book probably. But uh, yeah, I started getting interested in that way. And then when we moved to California and I got my first job in construction, I suddenly had a lot of money. And so I rented a house with a gigantic yard. And for four or five, well, for five years, I grew a gigantic organic garden, grew herbs and uh, besides vegetables, and I got interested in native plants. So I would order seeds from, from a company and grow native plants, too. That was my main, beginning of my main interest. Then, of course, I, construction caught up with me. I got another woman. We had kids. And so mostly I was working all the time.
0: Hey, nature enthusiasts. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up, too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Got it. So there, there was some interest in the background Yeah, uh, to, to rekindle later.
1: And, and I got into a construction union where if you work 25 years, you can draw a, a nice retirement check. Mm-hmm. And so... I kind of set it aside. I, I did work for a little while at Theodore Payne Foundation after growing native plants, but it was too much. It wasn't, it was too expensive. I mean, it wasn't paying enough. Life was too expensive. I went back to work in construction. That introduced me to the world of botany. And so, but with work being so involved in it and my interest in art and literature taking a different direction, I didn't plan on doing anything till I retired. Got it. And I know you have some very interesting
0: projects underway right now, but maybe before we get into that, let's get into the lichen a little bit more. Okay. Because they're, they're such fascinating creatures. And I think even in, say, in high school in the U.S., you learn a little bit about lichen if you take any sort of botany class. And uh, and I think the description that that at least I learned when I was going through school is not really very accurate. So rather than me try to tell you what I think it is, can you tell me a little bit about what is a lichen and describe the 10,000-foot view of their life history?
1: A lichen is a fungus, okay? That's when, we do, when you see a Latin name for a lichen, it describes the fungus. The fungus, uh, these probably evolved about 400 million years ago. These have, have a symbiosis with an algae or a cyanobacteria. What they do is they capture an alga in the early stage of development, right after they germinate, and develop a thallus around the alga. We'll use an alga for this, around the alga, and then they live off the carbon produced by the alga. They may take a little bit of minerals from the soil, but basically, that's what they live off, a garden inside them, and that still is the definition of a lichen. There's a lot of study now in, in upper university work because of the new techniques in molecular biology studying the microbiome of the lichens. The lichens have a thallus with a lot of space in it. And just like us, there's bacteria in them, archaea, and uh, other fungi. There's also parasitic fungi in them, just like we have uh, parasitic things in our microbiome that are usually kept in check that live within them too. And that's basically what a lichen is. They grow really slow, usually, especially in California. In the desert, for instance, if they even grow a millimeter, that I mean a micro, micron, that's a big deal. They can grow quite big in places like uh, the Arctic, some species like uh, Cladonias. And there's probably at least 17,000 species or more. I think there's a lot more, actually.
0: Yeah, a lot waiting to be discovered. Yeah, So you mentioned that the relationship between the fungi and the alga or the cyanobacteria, it's a symbiosis. I know there have been some articles in recent years that call that into question. They claim that maybe it's a little bit more of a complicated relationship. I was wondering what you think about
1: that. I think they're exaggerating. It's definitely a symbiosis between the alga and the fungus. You take that away and there's nothing there. Uh, what happens is, like I said, in, in in advanced molecular techniques, they're able to study the bacteria, for instance, in the fungus. They can they can sequence you when you sequence a fungus, you can off, pick up different fungi living within it. And so, the definition that some people are pushing forward is that a lichen is an ecosystem. Okay, yes, it is an ecosystem, but just in the sense that a human being is an ecosystem. And so the best way to think of it is there's still a symbiosis, but there's a microbiome that's very complex. Yeah. Okay.
0: That analogy works really well for me. I had seen a few articles, like in National Geographic and elsewhere, talking about these discoveries. And granted, these are all three, four, or five years ago. Just to clarify, this this algae that gets captured could it survive on its own?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, see, one of the things in lichenology for years was that the algae that's inside the lichens is is specific to them, but no, the algae is the algae ex- does exist by itself. We just did an elevational study in California of Umbilicaria thea, and it switched it switched algal partners every 500 meters in elevation. The old idea was that there was just uh, that the triboxia that's inside lichens only exists inside them that that's where they live and uh, now with sequencing and stuff they found out there's many species inside them even in that genus yeah that's fascinating
0: another direction for me to look into after we're done talking so then in the lichen propagation this capturing that happens
1: is that just by chance oh yeah you got to imagine our air is full of fungal spores whether it's a mushroom or a lichen, these spores are floating all over. We don't know the viability of lichen spores, but when they land, they have only a short period. Once they germinate, once the hypha forms out of the out of the uh, ascospore, they only have a short time to develop a relationship with an alga. And algae have a short lifetime too, usually. So, in areas that are more moist say like in the San Francisco Bay Area where you live, there's more chance for lichenization because the algae has a longer life cycle. In places like the desert, the life cycle is real short. So you only find lichens often on the north side of rocks or places like that where where the algae lasted long enough to form lichenization.
0: Got it. And then around here, again, I'm in the Bay Area, so we have some fairly large lichen that grow on our trees, like lace lichens and, and things like that. And they can I see I'll I'll see them on the on the forest floor or on the hiking trails. They flake off, fall off. Can they actually flake off and get transported somewhere else and
1: reestablish? Or once they flake off like that, yeah. Yeah. Any part of a lichen could be growing into a new lichen. For most lichens, that doesn't happen. But some lichens totally depend on that. Some are seridiate. Some are even sterile, never never even have apothecia, have sexual reproduction. In those cases, the, the lichen flakes off and is carried in the wind or drops to the ground or blows over on the, onto another part of the tree, and then those grow into lichens. That's a successful way of replicating itself. Similar to
0: how many plant species replicate by having uh, pollen or a seed or something fall off and get transported.
1: Yeah, that's a little different though. See, and the seeds are like the spores. Okay, that's from sexual reproduction. And so it has to establish its lifestyle, which is a, its lichen lifestyle from the very beginning. In the case of the seridia or pieces of lichen going, that's asexual reproduction. So those are clones that are developing. Got it. Okay. And when... What... Niche do
0: lichens fulfill in in an ecosystem? Like you, you've already spoken, to the fact that they occur in the Arctic, they occur in the desert, almost everywhere. What are they doing there?
1: Well, <laughs> they're alive. They just they have evolved and they found a pl- they found a niche to grow in, and the niches are quite different from area to area. Like besides growing on trees and so they grow on soil, they grow on rocks. Their actual function is to reproduce and produce more lichens, just like humans' natural thing is to produce more humans. In any system, like for instance, they may help some insects live, they may help break down the rocks, they may add to the biomass of the forest and add to nutrition when they're decomposed, etc. But the main thing is they're a living organism that reproduces. Lichens actually, they compete with each other for space, different species. Some of them will overgrow another one and destroy it, you know? So, I mean, it's just very similar to the way we look at animals.
0: So then as a result, because all, all of these plants and animals that are out there in an ecosystem are all trying to survive. They're all trying to reproduce. You know, some have found interesting uses of lichen. Like I, The one I like is when you find a bird nest and you see that they lined it with lichen. So these creative uses do come about. And I'm curious, what has been the most surprising interspecies use of lichen that perhaps you've encountered in the field?
1: Oh, actually, the the one with the bird nest is really, really beautiful. On St. Nicholas Island, uh, we have on the islands, we have Niebla's ramalinas growing there, these things, and different macro lichens. There's a lot of them out there on the island. The hummingbirds pick these up And then they have their nests low in the shrubbery. By having the lichens put around their nest, waving them into their nest, it's hard to see the nest. And so it works as good camouflage. In other cases, I think they just like picking them up. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, with bird nests, we contacted a bird nest museum and asked, we would like to see some bird nests with lichens on them. And they said, almost every nest we has have some lichens picked up in them so we couldn't even request specific nests to see they said just come down here and just look through all the nests
0: <laughs> that's really interesting because i most of my experience is actually with hummingbird nests like seeing the lichen on the hummingbird nest so i had no idea that it was such a, a vast use you know across bird species
1: well they're the um, most distinctive one because they seem to they have a very small nest and they wrap they wrap the lichen around the outside, so you can see it very. It's uh, in almost all nest uh, hummingbird nests I've seen where there's the right lichens there.
0: You mentioned the word macro lichen a few times. What distinguishes a macro lichen, and, and what what is the opposite? Is it a micro lichen, or <laughs> what what would be the other end?
1: Well, a macro lichen is basically what you were talking about—the big lichens, like the Ramalina menziesii, the green usnias hanging on a tree, uh, the big polios lichens that look like leaves that you see, those we call macro lichens. You can easily study them in a dissecting microscope. Well, with more advanced identification, you still need a microscope. But for most things, you can study them under a, a dissecting microscope. They're big. The micro lichens are mostly crusts. We call them crusts. And uh, they're, they're, they can be quite small so if I were out on a hike and I notice lichen growing on a
0: tree or a rock or on soil, those are probably macro lichen.
1: The macro lichens are the bigger things, a couple inches across or, or even an inch across or two. What you usually see on rocks are crustose lichens. Crustose lichens are, are, are not leaf-like. They look bumpy, or they they or they're all flat completely. But what you see on rock are what's called micro lichens. These aren't technical terms; they were terms that okay. just got introduced in lichenology for the size. Okay, so a micro lichen can be
0: visible to the naked eye.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. You yeah. see the ones on rock all the time. Yeah. If you try to study them though, you need a. You, you can look for them a little bit under a dissecting microscope, but you have to do anything with them. You have to cut them up and use them under a. Compound microscope. I see. So I, I was familiar with the three categories
0: of, of I guess maybe you call it a growth pattern or something like that. So the crustose oh, yeah. lichens,
1: that, the foliose lichens, and the the fruticose lichens. Fruticose lichens are what you see on the trees. Okay. We have squamulose lichens. Squamulose lichens are. They look like they're standing up. They usually have a long, long stipe or something, and they they stand up. These are just growth patterns, you know. I mean, they're not technical terms. When you're writing a description, you go, the lichen is crustose or the lichen was folios. You might say that in the description, you know. And that sort of description might be helpful in a field guide or in a key? The growth pattern will help you. It'll help you in identifying them if you're using a key. Actually, I never use any of those terms. Really? (laughs) I mean,. (laughs) So I mean, even fruticose, I haven't used that in in years. I'm on a different technical level than that. A lot of people ask this question, and yeah, it's a good way to to figure it out. But if you look at any kind of keys, eventually that's that doesn't work too good.
0: Sure, an analogy might be if for me anyway. So again, I'm approaching this from a very amateur sort of point of view. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if I buy a, a field guide to birds oftentimes the field guide is not arranged taxonomically, or at least maybe it's partially taxonomically, but instead they choose to put visually similar birds together. That's probably why I'm looking at it from that perspective.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like there's, for instance, uh, two books out of the Pacific Northwest. One of them is Macrolichens of the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, when you get that book, it's all going to be the bigger stuff, especially on trees. You know some nieblas along the coast that are easy to see. They're kind of uh, squamulose and and uh, you know a couple meters high sometimes. And uh, it'll have those kind of things in them. When you when you buy a book that says micro lichens, you might as well get your compound microscope out. I know that some
0: of the people that listen to this podcast, they're they're like me. They're sort of amateur naturalists. They like to go out and explore and see what they can find. When we do find a lichen in nature,
1: how can we tell if it's alive or not? If you find it in nature, it's alive usually, but a lichen dries really well. Uh, you can wet them before they get too old. In a herbarium, when they get really old, they start to fade a little. But if you just brought one home, you might think it's alive for quite a while after it's died.
0: And you hit on the difficulty in field identification, talking so much about needing microscopes of different, <laughs> different powers to, uh, to actually tell. In an area like I live, or, or Southern California, which you have so much experience in, what percentage of field-observable lichen are
1: actually identifiable to species? To species, well, it depends. If I were you, I would go out on some lichen walks. The main thing in the field is to learn the genera. There would be problems in identifying it, but you learn, like, what is a Fiscodia? What's a Physia? What's an Usnia? What's a Ramelina? What's a Niebla? For the crust, you learn if you have any familiarity with them, they can tell you at least you can learn, oh, those are cyanolichens on the rock, or those are, those are, that's probably an aspicilia. If you look at Steve Sharnoff's book, Lichens of California, you can get a good idea of what it is. You can get the genera. I think you can learn a good walk from the California Lichen Society in a rich area. You can learn quite a few genera. The identification of especially the big macro lichens, it's relatively easy. You definitely are not going to make a mistake about the state lichen, Ramelina menziesii. If you're studying Usnia, yeah, it's, it's really hard to identify which is which. It's better you know what an Usnia is, and then if you really want to identify it, you have to do some work on it. But for yeah. the pure enjoyment of it, it's just like getting any nature book. The main thing is to get out there and look at them, enjoy them, let them impress you. And then if you can't identify them, so what? I mean, th- there's a certain level beyond that. I mean, like, I get a, I have a just bought a gigantic book on mushrooms. Now, I don't expect to be able to identify every mushroom. I don't have time to measure the spores, but I look at the pictures and it increases my enjoyment uh, in this fantastic Czech Republic with 800 species of mushrooms. It increases my enjoyment every time I go out into nature. Do I? spend a lot of time identifying them? No. Do I really enjoy them?
0: Yes. That's a good perspective. And one thing that I've really enjoyed about lichen is, is really just their beauty. Their, mm-hmm. You start looking at them up close and they're sort of like abstract paintings or psychedelic artwork or like just kind of all over the map, which has been a lot of fun for me.
1: Oh, like even Andre Berton, the uh, the the founder of Surrealism, used to collect them just for their shapes. He didn't want to know what the, anything about the science of them. When he died, he had a collection of lichens, too, that he just collected because the shapes were so strange. So one of the questions that, what else would you recommend for people
0: who are coming at it from, say, my perspective, know a little bit about nature and are aware of lichens, but how can they start to learn more or go down the rabbit hole a little bit further? What would you recommend
1: they do? Well, you need to get a microscope to identify lichens. You need a few chemical regions, which you can get from the Lichen Society. I even you can order most of them online now. When I started, they were hard. You know, they weren't selling many chemicals online. Uh, most of the chemicals are available, I think, even on Amazon. You need some potassium, uh, some K. You need that. You need some. You Clorox, just use Clorox. You need that for sure. P. That stuff you need to probably get from another lichenologist, but that you don't use as often. You need a microscope, and you need to uh, just start getting into it.
0: Michael here with a short explanation. So what Kerry was talking about is spot testing, and the reagents he mentioned, K, it's specifically potassium hydroxide, C is bleach or sodium hypochlorite, and P is extremely hard to pronounce, so I'm going to try paraphenylenediamine. So I've never done these spot tests, but I read about them in the Steve Sharnoff book that was mentioned before and will be linked in the show notes. Apparently you do these tests with some special equipment under a microscope. Okay, back to the interview. So finding a group like the California Lichen Society sounds like a really good first step. Oh yeah, if
1: you're lucky, you live in an area and you live in an area where there's lots of lichens. There's no uh, Arizona desert lichen society because there's just not enough stuff unless you go to the top of the mountains, you know. But, I mean, you live in a fantastic lichen area.
0: I hope that there are other places in the world that have groups like that. But, yeah, you're right. They aren't going to be everywhere. (laughs) I'm thinking about the state I grew up in, Nebraska. I'm guessing there's
1: not a Nebraska lichen society either. No, a lot of the, well, you know, it it was mostly prairie and flatland. It was probably had a lot of soil crust, but all that farming, that disappeared. I don't know how, how the tree situation is. The few times I've driven across Nebraska, I didn't see a lot of trees either. When we were collaborating for this
0: episode, we talked a little bit about wildfire and the impact it has on lichen. And I know you had some interesting perspectives there. So in the West, wildfire is a fact of life. What can you tell us about wildfire and lichens?
1: One of the most serious problems in California, and every California knows this, is wildfires. With the increasing droughts from climate change, wildfires are becoming far more intense. After we have a big dry period, we have rains for a year or two, all the chaparral fills out, weeds, grasses grow, and more fuel, and then we have another drought. Also, it makes the trees a lot drier, and this is the Biggest problem for lichens, because these fires come in, they destroy all the lichens on the trees usually. I'm talking about the intense fires, not just a small grass fire. They literally act as blowtorches, burning burn the, the lichens off the rocks. And this is happening at such a tremendous rate, it's really going to affect lichen flores over the next 100 years here in California. There'll be a definite decrease in diversity, A lot of species that are being collected now may not be found again because, see, a lot of lichens are only known from 10 or 15 locations. So those may disappear. Major, a major change in the amount of lichen diversity in California. We already know from our work in Santa Monica Mountains that just from the fires beginning there, which uh, there was a decrease in rain starting from the beginning of the 20th century, We know that over 70 species collected before 1916, we couldn't find them again. And a large portion of them were ones that grew on trees. But big fires started there starting in the 1920s. And now fires continue there. I'm just writing a paper right now about a species of which one of the sites was on the Santa Monica Mountains. That is gone. Its other locations are in the San Jacinto Mountains, and those are all in forests, and those forests have been catching fire, too. A major change in the lichen diversity of California, and I'm just speaking of California.
0: Are you aware of any sort of long-duration, longitudinal collecting endeavors to help quantify this better, or is it just so inherently obvious that, that that's not necessary? I don't know anybody that's working on the problem, no. On a side note, I did interview a gentleman a few months ago, Rick Halsey, who... Oh, yeah, I know him. Rick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, California Chaparral Institute. So uh, we had a really good discussion about wildfire in Chaparral. We didn't get into lichen, but yeah, there's just so many challenges in that space. I did really want to... Find out about what you're working on these days. And you had mentioned to me previously, anyway, that you're now studying lichen diversity in the Chihuahuan Desert, and I think specifically in New Mexico, portion of the Chihuahuan Desert. Uh, can you tell me about that project and what your goals are?
1: Well, our goals, is, of course, is to record the. We were collecting everything. The interesting thing of it is we thought because it had the most rainfall. That they would have the highest diversity. Now, we're not talking about the Sky Islands. That's above about 2,000 meters. Okay, that's a totally different flora. So, up there, you get macro lichens and, and higher diversity. Most people that collect in New Mexico in the past have gone there because that's where the action is. But we picked the Chihuahuan Desert, which is only in the southern part of New Mexico and is below. 1,900 meters down to 1,000 meters. About 1,000 to 900 meters is the base. It's high desert in in the Chihuahuan Desert. And so we're just collecting everything. We were expecting higher diversity, though. So right now, we're in about 115 species. We've had some problems with this pandemic the last time we were collecting, so we didn't get in as many areas as we wanted to. But we were expecting higher diversity. It has the most rainfall of the three major deserts. It has nine inches a year. What we didn't think of, not that it affects our project, but the thing is is the reason there's less diversity, we think, is the rain comes almost completely in the summer. Now, in the Mojave Desert, the rainfall is much lower, two, three inches in a lot of parts of the Mojave Desert now. Unless it's the desert floor... Wherever there's rocks and stuff, you'll find lichens. And the diversity and say, we worked on a lot of collections on the Joshua tree in the Mojave Desert and only got 150 species. Arizona, the Sonoran Desert, is is very low. It has lichens, and I'm not sure the exact— it's hard to tell the exact amount of lichens that you can find at the lower elevation. When we collected around Tempe, for instance— I'd go out with Tom Nash, and he knew where some rock outcrops were and stuff at lower elevation, but that's probably pretty low too because the Sonoran flora says that most of Arizona, there's no lichens at lower elevations. So if you were just to study the Sonoran Desert below, say, 200 meters, it's probably somewhere close, but maybe higher because of the rainfall in winter and summer. All of this probably goes back to what you were asking about algae and reproducing, they have if all the rainfall is in the summer, the evaporation rate at a hundred degrees is pretty fast. So the chance of lichens reproducing by spores is limited to that very short period. So we think that affects the low diversity we're seeing so far. Interesting set of lichens, though. Fortunately, for me, the group that I'm a specialist in turned out to be the most dominant family there with twenty eight species. Okay. And we found seven, no, eight that are new to science.
0: So these collecting efforts, is it just you or do you have partners?
1: We have some people we're connected with, but it's just me and my wife going out collecting. We're both skilled collectors. My wife's been in this longer than I have in terms of lichenology. Mm-hmm. And we go out and collect ourselves. We mail the specimens back to Prague and there we, we clean them up, identify them, curate them, we're doing sequencing and studies on them too.
0: And in the desert, is it primarily rocks that you find lichen on, or do you also find them on cacti or trees or soil?
1: Not so much on cacti. At the lowest elevations or in a place like White Sands, there's a lot of soil crust. So far from what we've collected, though, the diversity still is maybe 15 species or so. I'm, I'm not sure yet exactly, but that's not very high. We we're expecting higher soil crust. Mm -hmm. species count. Most of them are on rocks, but in our area, in the area we're studying in, once you come off the lowest part of the desert floor at 1,000 meters and get up even to 1,200 meters or so along any of the mountains, then you get them also, you start having some pinyon pine scattered around and mesquite. We've collected stuff on mesquite, but still most of them are on rocks.
0: You were talking about the high evaporation rate being detrimental. So is it fair to say that if you were near a water source, you might have higher species counts, or is that too simplistic?
1: We haven't been into any really good riparian areas. So yeah, in fact, actually, yeah, we, along creeks and stuff, for instance, there's some creeks in the Oregon mountains. We walked along those and and found hardly anything. Hmm. Uh, it just depends. It, it's really the stuff growing on trees and, and mesquite at those elevations is really uneven. You know, it's like find something on one mesquite, the next ten mesquites you don't find anything on. You find stuff on one pinion pine, then you don't you don't see anything on the next pinion pine. Uh, there's some oaks, but the oaks uh, the kind of oak species we saw had very little on them. When you get up to around 1,900 meters, you're at the top of the Chihuahuan zone and at the beginning of what we call the Rocky Mountain flora, and there you have an increase of species, and that's only because there's more moisture
0: up there. And did you pick this area just simply because there is not as much known about lichen diversity?
1: Yeah, we picked it for that. We, we had done the Joshua tree study, and it, we were interested in desert habitat and also, uh, we, we weren't sure if there'd be a lot of new species or, or uh, if it was just mostly like the Arizona Mojave flora. Mm-hmm. We got some specimens that may be specific to the Chihuahuan Desert, but we don't know enough about that yet. Like uh, the nine new species that we were describing, we're not sure what their distribution is outside of the area where we're
0: collecting. Well, that sounds fruitful so far, though. Even though the diversity isn't as high as you were expecting, uh, you're finding new things and establishing at least a baseline. How long do you plan to continue the research in that area?
1: It's a four-year grant. We're in the okay. we're at right now. We're in just beginning the third year, and this year we're not going to make it to New Mexico with this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we'll be uh we'll be doing a lot of sequencing and taxonomic work all year. I I work on the specimens six days a week, easy and the problems involved. I always like to ask just a
0: couple basic questions of my guests because there's so many different perspectives out there. If there was, say, one important ecological concept that you wished the general public knew about to advance their understanding of the natural world, what would that be?
1: I think the most important thing for everybody to understand now is that the climate is really changing. That This is... A global problem. And I think that's the most important ecological thing to understand at this time. The world that you see, that I see when we go out in nature, it's going to change. The second most important concept of that is that the change, for instance, of fire, for instance, that, that we were discussing, that's from climate change. The other effect is we are going through a mass extinction. Even if we did not have climate change, we are not taking care of nature in lots of areas. With the capitalist system we have, I'm not saying we should go to communism or anything, but with the capitalist system we have, it's not sustainable for nature. You can't keep expanding into nature and destroying it for profit. Look what they just did in the Amazon. Those fires were not by accident. They were to clear land. Okay? You take away climate change. okay, everybody's worried about the climate change effect of that. okay, take that away. What if the climate wasn't changing? Still look at the amount of diversity that was destroyed and man, even if the even if they don't farm the areas, it comes in weedy looking from the pictures I've seen it doesn't look the same. That's the other thing that's happening and it's been happening since we began since Europeans and began exploring the world it, that for sure has been happening. The extinction rate has increased constantly. It's not just the dodo bird disappearing; it's lots of things disappearing, and it goes back farther actually to the beginning of humans. I mean, of human migration in the in the world. And in Europe here, people have been living here for thousands and thousands of years. I'm studying. I also work on on my family here in the uh, in central europe and in the czech republic we have many i noticed that at lower elevations that's below 900 meters which is lower elevation here and most of that lowland habitat has been like for instance cleared from rocks turned into uh, artificial forests turned into farming land this extinction rate began a long time ago this extinction but now it's at a at an incredible pace
0: there's a, a couple of things that I might point listeners to. When you talked about the clearing of the Amazon, there's an economist, a fairly famous economist, Steve Levitt from, I think, University of Chicago, who did an analysis about that clearing and found that it doesn't even make economical sense. So the, the clearing is occurring for ranching, but the ranch land is only viable for a couple of years. And then after that, the land is, is wasted. So uh, yeah, with just, a, and with a little investment that could be stopped. And the investment has huge ROI. So he runs this thing called the Center for Risk and does a lot of analysis on these sorts of things. And he's also really famous for the Freakonomics books and podcast. And he just had an episode recently with a simple solution for the Amazon. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to be politically viable, despite having a really nice ROI and a much smaller footprint. I'll find that Freakonomics episode and link it in the show notes as well. And to your point, the the world that we see today, it's especially for younger people, it's what they know. They haven't seen, they can't see what it was like fifty years ago or a hundred years ago. So sometimes it's hard to get people interested in in caring. You know, so like I have this visualization that there's sort of a, a ladder of environmental care. And you start off maybe not knowing or not caring, but something hooks you, something grabs your interest. And once you start to care about that, you learn about it, and then you start to take action. And I'm always looking for for tips or tricks or techniques to help people ascend that ladder. And I'm curious, in your interactions with either academics or the public or friends, Like, what have you found to be effective in doing that?
1: Well, I, I volunteered to take people out in the field for lichens. My wife still does that teaching. When you take people out and they learn about one organism, it's just like you said, then they begin to become involved with nature. It's very great that like I when you were, you you had a question like what it, what about when I was a child? In when I was a child there was no environmental education in school. So that's another important component of it. People have to have some connection with nature. They have to find some connection with nature and there's a lot of things that lead us in a different direction. We live in an internet world now. There's lots of things to take your attention away from nature. And that's why it's even good that Microsoft puts on every time I, I let them put on a new picture every day of somewhere part of nature. You know, that there's little things like that. It's all It's all effective. People have to watch animal channel and just don't watch the veterinarian show or watching chasing Bigfoot in Alaska. You know, look at some of the other shows. I I don't know any real solution to that. We have some grandkids and because we know about mushrooms, we know about nature, we take them out and they get excited about it. I don't think any of them are going to become mycologists, but everybody needs to have that kind of education or exposure. I can see how it's easy to get into another frame of mind where you're totally wrapped up in your life and uh, in the city. Well, I'm happy
0: to see that there's a lot more realization that just getting out in nature is good for well-being and mental health, and that's starting to get a lot of traction. I hope people take that to heart, because that's at least a start. To wrap things up, if people want to follow your work,
1: where's the best place for them to go? Well, first thing, I never go on social media. You Google my name, you'll find the podcast and you'll find, uh, if you Google my name or or look it up, you'll find uh, some recent articles mentioned, etc. Publications will show up on the internet. The other place is I post everything I publish on ResearchGate. So if you go there, you can, by the way, you don't have to even be a member. You can, there's a search way to search for articles on there from outside. I try to even publish in free journals as much as possible. So I can just put them on there and people can download them for free. Some journals that I have to for science and also for grants and stuff that I have to publish in with impact factors. I don't own the copyright, but Mm -hmm. those are listed there. And you can uh, email me on ResearchGate and we're glad to send them. And And also, the California Lycan Society, I try and write something for every bulletin if I can, you know.
0: So that's how I found you, in fact. I, I think I just Googled the word lichenologist. And then that led me to ResearchGate. So so I emailed you to see if you'd be interested in doing this. But what I'll do for people who are listening is we referenced a couple things here as we were going. I'll make sure I include links to your ResearchGate page. And I, I know there's also this nice little short documentary video about you on Vimeo uh, as well. I'll make sure to link to that and all the other things we talked about, California lichen society and and so forth i'll make sure there's links there so it's at least a jumping off point for for people that are listening okay carrie is there anything else you want to say before we
1: close if you're interested in lichens it takes some work to actually get deep into them so if you're getting into them and you're a little bit a year or so into experimenting with them or looking at them and you find out it's just not what you want to do don't feel bad it's like studying the gen- genitalia of flies. Beyond a certain point, it's uh, it's really specialist work. Now, an amateur can do that. There's famous amateurs who have studied insects too, and so you can you can do it if you want to do it. But don't feel bad if you get a little deep into it and you go, "This is this is not for me." All right,
0: I think that's good advice for a lot of things. At some point, you know, have the right expectations.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know. Hey, listen. Some things you just uh, have to try out and they just don't work, but you can do it. You can, you can do quite a bit with lichens, especially if you're in an area like California where you got books, a society that you can contact. There aren't very many taxonomists left in lichenology. So there's, you can contact people like me, but I can only tell you so much from a, from an iPhone picture, for instance. Mm-hmm. and uh, in the last five years, I spent most of my time working on just one family, except for uh, going through these New Mexican specimens, and so my knowledge of California is starting to fade a little bit.
0: Yeah, there's just so many rabbit holes. I keep using that term, rabbit hole, that you can go mm-hmm. down in this space, and there's always more. The closer you well, look, the more there is.
1: holes to go down, unlike you yeah. and on, so. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you again, and with that, I I wish you a good night.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know, did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work, so please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature Podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature Podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support, so check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.